All right, well, turn with me in your Bibles, please, back to Ecclesiastes 5. We'll read that passage one more time. And then we have other passages to move on to. Kind of a clunky title for the sermon today as I uh, meditated on stuff throughout the week and, and tried to make a decision as to what direction out of the myriads of directions that we might have gone. I was thinking of titling this sermon today, Preparing for Our Preparation. <laughs> so, a little weird, a little odd, but hopefully it'll make sense as we move on. So let's go ahead and read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 1 through 8. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Keep thy foot when thou goest <clears throat> to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools... For they consider not that they do evil. <clears throat> be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities, but fear thou God." If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Notice John Flavel uh, to introduce the topic today. What pernicious enemies to the souls of men are those persons and things that turn away men's ears from attending to the knocks and calls of Christ in his word. Such are profane wicked men who, like Elymas the sorcerer, make it their business by wicked insinuations, shouts and jeers, to turn away men's ears from the gospel, Acts 13.10. Take heed of carnal and ungodly relations which discourage and threaten their chosen servants, and all that depend on them from attending upon the means or giving way to the convictions which God by them hath set upon their hearts. Three, take heed of the world, its distracting cares and charming pleasures. What a din, what a confused buzz and noise do these things make in the ears of men. Mark 4.19, the cares of this world choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Tell not them of getting Christ. They must study how to get bread. These are some of those distracting and diverting sounds which drown the voice of Christ's knocks and calls in the gospel. As you value, as you value your souls, beware of them. Well, maybe now we're getting a little bit more of what Pastor Todd means in preparing for our preparation. 
All right, so for the last two weeks, we looked at this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we saw that there are broad principles in this passage, and then we also looked over at 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14, didn't we? And we said that God's worship, if it's going to be undertaken properly, uh, will be somehow involved with these principles, and the principles that we looked at are the first is there's a right way of proceeding, or there is regulation. That when we come to worship God, we worship him according to his commandments and not according to the suggestions of Satan or the doctrines of men. That our devotions toward God are God-ordered. We've talked about regulated worship before. We'll not belabor it now except to say that this broad principle is necessary. And with some of our brethren, let me say this, that we may not agree on exactly every one of the regulations but there is no room for disagreement on the principle itself. None at all. Okay, secondly, we saw uh, in, in, in the second outward broad principle, we saw that there is order required, decorum and decency. And we looked at this uh, from the standpoint of the Apostle Paul regarding the varied duties among the people of God. That there is order, that there are offices that there are some who teach and some who are taught. And that to press out of one's station is to, is, to, um, is to behave in a disorderly manner. Even those prophets that had leave to speak to the people of God should conduct themselves with order as well. And so we saw that order and decency is a, uh, is a, a principle that we remember when we come before the Lord to profit from the worship. And we used a very homey example, didn't we? We said that if, you know, if we're at home doing family worship, uh, we don't really allow our children to cut off dad and begin praying on their own. That would be disorderly, right? That we all gather together to participate together in that orderly fashion. Okay. Then we heard of propriety. Propriety also. We talked about that, uh, that we are to keep our foot when we come into whose house? The house of God. It's God's house. And so the rules of the house are God's rules. My house, my rules, God says. Not in the same profane way that we mean that, but in the way that pertains to his house and the greatness of it. It must match his name. Remember what David said to the elders of Israel when Solomon, his son, was going to build the house. He said, the way the King James puts it is quaint, the house that my... Son Solomon will build for the Lord is exceeding magnifical, is how it says in the King James. Exceeding magnifical. Well, that means that everything that goes into it must match that kind of, of glory. Well, the same thing is true of God's house now. We must listen to him. He has ordered it. The house of Christ is still the house of Christ. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that Moses was a servant in the house, but Christ is the son over the house. It's his. Then we looked at some inward principles as well. So we noted reverence in our approach to God. Related to that, we noted humility. Third, we noted submission. Uh, fourth, we used the term memory to teach us what? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Pun intended. We use the term memory 
so that we might remember who it is that we, rep- that we approach in worship. The greatness of our God. That when we come to church, and children, this will be a little bit harder for you, but it is something that you can begin to practice even now. That when you think about Sunday morning, when you get up in the morning, and you're getting ready for church, and mom is curling or brushing your hair, or getting you dressed and putting on your suspenders and all of those things, and you're thinking about coming to church, some of the things you may think about are what? Oh, I'm coming to see my friends. Right? And that's true, you are. Or some of you may even dare to think, oh, I'm coming to see Pastor Todd. And you might think that. But all of those should be swept out of your thoughts because the first thing that you're doing is you want to remember that you're coming to see God. You're coming to see him preached in his word. You're coming to hear from him as his word is expounded, as you sing it, as you hear it read. You're coming to worship him. That's the first thing. We want to remember first and foremost who it is. So we use the term memory. We, we said humility. We said reverence. We said submission. We said we come with memory. We thought on three words that are purported to us, that are pressed to us from the larger catechism. We, we noted diligence, preparation, and prayer. I want to talk a little bit more about preparation in a few moments. The other thing that we saw is truthfulness and sobriety and singleness of heart or sincerity. All of those things we saw as broad principles that must adhere to us as we come to worship the Lord. If we will be profitable to ourselves and especially to the Lord and others if we come to worship him or when we come to worship him. (coughs) So the goal of worship as described by the Lord, is to serve him. I was thinking about this. How do I get this across? Because it's hard to get across in our day. We're reading in story time today about John Payton. Some of you will remember John Payton. You've read about him in the past. He's a missionary, Scottish missionary, to the New Hebrides Islands, which is somewhere in that vast South Pacific between Fiji and Indonesia. Now you might think, boy, that guy, he really did something for God. He really served the Lord. He did. He served the Lord. But beloved, when we come to church, that's what we come to do. We come to serve the Lord. We call it a worship service for a reason. We're serving him. We bring ourselves. We bring our mouths. We bring our minds. We bring all those things he's told us to bring in confidence that in Christ he will receive them as the service that we bring to him. So don't think of the local public worship in our churches as anything short of service to God. It is that service. And as John Payton went to New Hebrides, so we come to Wiley for the same reason, to serve the Lord. Now his Work may be harder, John Payton's, as we consider it. It may be harder. It may He left family and friends. He left comforts. He left all kinds of things. And uh, as we said today, to, to minister to a group of people that would just as soon eat him as hear from him. Okay, so there were perils in his service that don't attend the perils in our service. Or we, we don't have that kind of peril here. But there are other perils, aren't there? Right? 
like Solomon will say here in chapter 5, that we offer the sacrifice of fools. They, we know not that we do evil. Like we fail to recognize who's here. So like Jacob, when he was in Bethel in Genesis 28, or Luz, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he says that as a, what if I would have done something wrong before the angel, before the Lord? Right? So there are perils here. We just don't recognize them nearly as we ought because we forget who it is that we come to serve. We want to, if we're going to profit from worship, we're going to recognize that our service is to God. Uh, the other reason we come to church is to hear the preaching of the word and be converted to Christ. The Lord is bringing his people to church to hear the gospel that they may be saved. And the third is to be edified or built up that we might be of service to others in that church and, be, and might take our place in the wall of the house as those living stones. Okay, so we've only mentioned preparation in that statement of the larger catechism, how should the word be heard. But I want to spend a little bit more time with that today. And I will say that this is the sermon that nobody wants to hear, I think. Um, when, I, when I say that, what I mean is that when we think of preparation and coming to the worship of God, what's the first thing that you think of? What is the first thing that comes to mind and let's go ahead and maybe extend that out a little bit and speak you know we have the lord's supper every week here so we talk about preparation perhaps a little bit more than others but there are others who maybe partake of the lord's supper uh, less frequently than we do and what do you think the word preparation means to them at that time when we think of the word preparation when you hear pastor todd say beloved you must prepare for worship what do you think of and many times our thoughts go to Saturday night and Sunday morning, right? And that's not illicit, beloved. But it's not preparation. That's the secondary preparation. There's a preparation before preparation. That's what I want to talk to you about today. There's something that must take place before Saturday night and before Sunday morning, or else the preparation of Saturday night and Sunday morning will always be what I call Christian catch-up. You know what Christian catch-up is? We're always playing catch-up. We're always behind the curve. So let's, let's talk for a little bit about that kind of preparation. Um, we live in times then that are distracting and that are busy and that are exciting and excitable with many pleasures and earthly comforts. Uh, further, our times often include entertainment, recreation, fun. What passes for a normal life today Beloved, just a couple of generations ago, completely unheard of. Oh, here, here goes Pastor Todd and his nostalgia again. No, this is not nostalgia. There's real use in this. Stick with me for a few minutes. In the days in which the Bible was written, in the days in which Paul would give instruction to masters of families and so on, the days socially were very, very different from our day. They didn't have media, they didn't have screens, they didn't have televisions, they didn't have uh, carnivals and all such uh, kinds of things going on in their towns. They didn't even have really a lot of uh, like re recreational venues. They had a few, but they were mostly for the folks that, were, that, you know, that, that could afford them. 
And many of them were off-putting. They were violent. We'll think of the gladiator uh, battles in the in coliseums and whatnot. But those those didn't take place as we have opportunity for such things in our day. And this was how it continued, really, for generation upon generation. Uh, describe your daily way. Uh, the, the minute by minute blows of what you do to your grandparents or great grandparents and they think you live on another planet they had a much more may I say it this way modest calm peaceful lifestyle they, they went abroad less they left their homes in the evenings less during the day less maybe they worked uh, some of them worked in town and then they would come home and they would spend the evening at home without television, with a, with a good book, with the Bible, with family prayer. And that really was not an aside, but that really took up the bulk. When it got dark, there, there wasn't, in many cases, throughout our history, electric lights. <clears throat> and so it became dark in the house as well. And it was really um, <clears throat> more difficult to do things into the evening and to maintain that recreational sort of mindset. Today, it seems to me, and maybe I could be corrected in this, but it seems to me that this recreational or leisurely or entertainment-centered mindset, it's really with us every day. That one of the things that we do is we want to sit down and relax, and what are we going to do? We're going to turn something on or watch some video or do this kind of thing and 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 just you know I just want to sit and absorb I'm tired I don't want to think I don't want to I don't want to put out anymore I've I, I've worked very often we work uh, excessively we work for the wrong ends and we end up really in all of that we end up turning our affections away from what we have called in this church a Sabbath cadence we have unwittingly I think and in many ways we have separated our lives into Sabbath and not Sabbath. The preparation that we need before our preparation is to learn to live every day. To learn to live every day with the first day of the week in mind. And to bring every venue, task, activity, business, leisure, pleasure, entertainment, recreation, whatever it is, learn to bring every bit of that to the feet of the Lord every day, looking forward to the day when those things pass away and we come directly to Him to hear from Him. The preparation that we need is not Saturday night. The preparation that we need begins Sunday night and Monday morning for next week that we learn to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ that we're gathering in ways to glorify the Lord in our day to day living and they are considered in a proper context not in a, not in a six day context and Sabbath context not in that kind of a separation because beloved may I say it this way we don't have two commandments we don't have 4A and 4B Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. 
And then 4B is, but the seventh day. Oh, you want my attention on some new topic? No. No, the six days are in order to the seventh. And there are several passages of scripture that I'd like to bring to bear on that in the, in the time that we have left. So there are times, and we've said this before, this should be nothing new. There are times that because of this greater, op- we, and we must admit we have a great opportunity in our day for distraction. A great opportunity for uh, d- what Flavel called distracting worldly cares. Whether those cares are worries or whether they're pleasures, there's a great opportunity for that today. Just sit down for five minutes and pull up entertainment on this thing that you carry around with you all day. Right? Other times, we run too hard on the other days of the week. We pursue things that are good things but perhaps disproportionately pursued, such that by the time we, um, I don't know how to say it, by the time we crash into bed on Saturday night, that we don't have much left in the tank for Sunday morning. But we've done our preparation, we've been diligent, we've, we've gone through all of those steps, and, and, and beloved, I'm not telling you not to do that at all. But, I, but what I am trying to do is contextualize that with regard to the entirety of our lives, if we're going to profit Lord's Day by Lord's Day, our preparation begins, like we said a moment ago, Sunday night and Monday morning, to bring everything to the feet of Christ all week long, that we stop considering things with regard to, this is my work, <coughs> instead of, this is my work that I present to, to God. This is my, this is my fun this is my, my little mad money thing that I do. And this is the recreation that God has given me to bring me back into alignment, to give me some downtime. We consider all of those things with that other godly perspective rather than separate from him. So let's look at our work for a moment. Let's talk about that. Work is obviously a necessary thing. The fourth commandment commands it as a part of our Sabbath keeping, right? Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Let's look at Ecclesiastes. Let's, since we're here, let's stay here for a few moments. Chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2.24. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Notice there is a reason God gives you work here. He doesn't just give you work. There's a reason he gives you work. And what is it? That you would acknowledge him in it. That it is God who gives to man what is good in his sight. Wisdom, knowledge, and joy. 
That is, in your labor he gives you wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he gives travail to gather and to heap up, to do all the stuff that he does with his labor for somebody else. So the first thing here is that Solomon's going to talk about our work, but he's going to talk about it from a perspective we're not used to talking about. And that is that our work belongs to the Lord. It's something that he gives us. We're working, as it were, on his plantation, on his land. Turn the page over to chapter 3, verse 13, if you have to turn the page. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Now, if, if this labor and its fruit are the gift of God, then we are, we are required to acknowledge God in it, thank God for it, and do it in his sight. Our labor is not separate from our Sabbath. Our labor is in order to our Sabbath. It is that which God provides Uh, uses to provide for us in six days of the week that the seventh day we don't have to work at all. And this is his gift. This is his hand. It belongs to him. In chapter 5, where we were, where we started out, we'll skip down toward the end of the chapter in uh, verse 18. Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun and all the days of his life which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Did you hear that? There are a lot of people, they come to the end of their life, and what do they want to talk about? They want to talk about all their achievements. Why? Because their work was not unto God. It was for themselves. Notice what it says here. This man comes to the end of his life, and they shall not remember much the days of their life. (coughs) And I take Solomon to mean here that the work that they've done, that they were so joyous to do it before God, that they don't remember the work, they remember the joy. They remember that they had brought everything to the feet of Christ. And so the Sabbath for them was not an interruption. It was a continuation of what they did all week long. Their preparation began quite early. As students, whether you're grown or still in your parents' house, your academic labors are also good labor and from the Lord. as a part of your training for adulthood. Yet, these labors, if rightly handled, will not hinder or distract you from God's worship. The Lord speaks to excessive work, doesn't he? Psalm 127. What does the Lord have in mind, beloved, for your labor? Listen to what it says in Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he giveth, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. <coughs> Sadly, some ministers come to this passage and they say, we see this is against workaholism. 
Well, it may be, but that's not what's being said. That's not the main thing that, that uh, Solomon is getting at here. Notice it's a song for Solomon or to Solomon. Uh, the Lord must build the house. Now, the house there obviously is being spoken of, uh, that, that is being spoken of, is the house of the Lord. Beloved, let me, can, can I ask you the question this way? How is your labor in the world contributing to the building of the house of the Lord? It is a question to ask ourselves, isn't it? And how do we contribute to the building of the house of the Lord with our day-to-day labor in the world? We contribute to that with excellence and diligence, with a witness and, a, and an adornment of our profession of the gospel. We show the world around us how upright, God-fearing people work and labor, and our, our talk matches our walk in all of our labors. We're bringing our labor every day, every morning to the feet of the Lord before we go about it. We're asking him to correct us after we're done with it every day because we're bringing it as an offering to him day upon day upon day. And then when we come to the Sabbath, that's just the graduation of that into different labor. It's not a distraction. It's not different. It's not different in its thesis. It's different in the particulars. There is workaholism spoken to here, but it's not really workaholism. What, what is workaholism? It's really idolizing your work. The Lord says, I have not required anything of you that should cause you to lose sleep, except in the most extraordinary circumstances, right? All other things being equal, in other words. Your labor in this world should not require you night upon night upon night upon night to deprive yourself of God's gift. If your cares and your concerns about your earthly labor are such that you're missing sleep as a habit, beloved, this passage tells us that maybe we've got the wrong conception about our labor. Now some of you young parents are telling you, you haven't been to my house when the child won't sleep. Well, that's different labor different service we understand if labor for labor's sake becomes the goal then the sabbath is going to be an interruption to that and yeah you'll have to switch gears and prepare but if labor is for the lord's sake if you're bringing your labor to the lord every day in service to him then you just have something different to take up on the lord's day but it is still in the same vein, in the same lane, if you will. Okay, so um, the Lord speaks to excessive work, but he also speaks to sloth, doesn't he? Because if we're slothful in our day-to-day work, we will tend to be slothful toward the Lord in our Sabbath work. Right? You see, these things are tied up together. So, uh, we have, uh, I've referenced Psalm 3, 5 and Psalm 4, 8. <clears throat> Psalm 3, 5 reads, I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. This is David speaking when he fled from Absalom, his son. His fleeing from Absalom is a godly thing. 
he has not stepped outside of his devotion to God in so doing. Also then, we ought not to step outside of our devotion to the Lord in our labor, in our recreation, in our leisure, in any of that. And if we do, then, then we will, then when we come to our preparation on, say, quote, Saturday night, that preparation will be more difficult. Our preparation needs to be prepared for, as I've said. <coughs> Psalm 4.8, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that I, that I wanted to speak with you about is about is worldly cares, because the worldly cares that we entertain will also thwart our preparation for the Lord's Day. This is a very simple thing. I think we all know it. We know the passages of Scripture that we turn to to show that it is um, Matthew thirteen, Mark four, and Luke eight. All of those are three different witnesses to the parables, the kingdom parables, especially the parable of the sower. And you'll remember that there was a third seed that was cast. The third seed was what? The one that was thrown upon thorny ground. Right? Thorny ground. So if I can conflate all three of those passages together in everything that is said what happens to the seed that is cast among the thorns? There are the cares of this world, <clears throat> the deceitfulness of riches, whether that's the deceitfulness of riches, either of having them, thinking too much of them, they're deceitful in that way, or the way in which we pursue them, deceitfulness in that way. The lusts of other things, and then Luke adds the cares, riches, and pleasures of this life. Those are the things that choke out the word that it become unfruitful. Now, beloved, in this parable, there are four different grounds that receive the same seed. The first falls on the roadbed or the hard pack, and it doesn't sink in. Right? It's like casting it on asphalt. And the birds come along and they eat it up. The second falls upon stones. And there's a little bit of earth there, but not enough to sustain the plant, and so it withers soon. Then there's another that's sown in ground that's pretty good, except that it's populated also with the seeds of weeds. And it ends up growing up and being choked out by the weeds. And then there's the fourth that is good ground that is not weedy, and that it brings forth fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. The first three, that's not where we want to be. We don't want to be among those seeds that sprout, but they sprout among the cares of this world, the pleasures of this world, the riches of this world, the lusts of other things, the deceitfulness of riches, and so on, such that the seed becomes unfruitful. The Lord has given us that we should live in this world, but we should live in this world not being careful or distracted by it. If, we, if the world is too much with us, as Wordsworth puts it, we will not be able to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Day properly. Oh, we'll make an effort on Saturday night and Sunday morning. We will. We'll, we'll make that effort. And we will achieve a, a modicum of preparation. 
if we partake of the Lord's Supper in other churches, say, more, uh, uh, more infrequently than we do, well, then there'll be a time of, of perhaps more intensive preparation. But, beloved, what I think the Scripture presents to us instead of all that is that we live day to day to day in that kind of preparation, in that kind of God-mindedness with our eyes pointed toward heaven. And if we live in that way, then we're already preparing by the time we get to Saturday night, aren't we? <clears throat> when, we um, when we see Cain after he has killed Abel, and he goes out east of Eden to the land of Nod, he begins to build a city. That's in Genesis 4, 16 through 24. Now, I'm going to say it this way. There are things that are set forth there that to the natural man sound perfectly fine. What do they do? Well, they begin developing architecture and building, music, instruments, recreations, entertainments, art, um, all kinds of things like that. All the things that people pursue in this world without the Lord. And beloved, our lives must not look like that. Our lives must not be full of pursuits apart from the Lord or adjunct to Him. He must be the undergirding of all of our pursuits, whether it's work, rest, recreation. All of it must be brought to Him. And so this is the preparation that precedes our preparation. There are, um, maybe this will help as an illustration. You know what a hyperbaric chamber is? Some of you will know what that is. It's a, it's a tube, a long tube. looks like a big tank. But it's big enough for people to go into. And there are people that, for a living, do uh, deep sea salvage and they have to go down to 200 and 300 feet in diving suits. That's, um, that's hard work. That's tough work. Tough work. But the pressures at two or 300 feet, while they're not harmful in the short term, to go in and out of that is harmful. And so if someone was to say, okay, today I'm going to go to 300 feet, and then tomorrow... I'm going to come out from under that pressure. And then the next day I'm going to go back to that and come in and out of that. That's impractical. Normally what they do is they will come under pressure for a week at a time. And they'll live in a hyperbaric chamber to keep those pressures high. So they don't need to compress and decompress, compress and decompress. If I can put that forth as an example, beloved, we don't want to flip in and out of our recognition of God as the master of all that we do. We don't want to think of our lives as in and out of that. We want always to be in the spiritual hyperbaric chamber, such that when we come to the end of the week, we're continuing, not starting something new. If we're going to profit from our public worship, from the Sabbath and all that it entails, I think that would be required of us. Some pleasures are lawful enough, others are not lawful at all. But because they appeal to our base nature, they're to be watched closely 
and they are not to become something they ought not to become with us. There are sinful things, Romans 1.32 and 2 Thessalonians 2.12. Hope I got enough to finish here in the tank, speaking of tanks. Um, These are unlawful pleasures and ought to be avoided. 1 Timothy 5 talks about the widow who lives in pleasure is dead even while she lives. That is, she may be pursuing lawful things, but she is living for pleasure. She's dead while she lives. She should not be able to think. Now, think with me here. She should not be able to say, oh, I'm going to prepare on Saturday night for coming to church on Sunday when she's living in pleasure. Paul says she's dead while she lives. If our lives are given to pleasure, and beloved, can we just face it for a moment? This is everywhere we go now. There are all kinds of pleasures available all the time. Some of them are lawful pleasures. Some of them unlawful. We assume that we're staying away from those unlawful pleasures. But with regard to lawful pleasures, they can be had in such a proportion as to say what Paul says about the widow in 1 Timothy 5, that she's living in pleasure and so she's dead while she lives. We don't want to be that person. We don't want to be the person that is looking for the next pleasurable thing. And by pleasurable here, he's talking about worldly or earthly pleasures. Not necessarily unlawful. Just not undertaken with that motive of how in this pleasure am I glorifying God? How am I serving him? How am I advancing his kingdom? How are his interests coming before mine in this pleasure? We understand that it is possible to love pleasure over much and that this is a part of our former lives, not as Christians. It's, it's interesting to see how Paul brings that up with, 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 Timoth- with Timothy. So turn with me to 2 Timothy for a moment. Second Timothy chapter 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You hear that? Beloved, I'm here to tell you today that I can't know your heart, whether or not you're a lover of pleasure more than lovers of God. But one thing I can tell you is this, that the temptation to that is present with us. And when we succumb to that temptation, then the progress that we make toward the Lord's Day is certainly arrested at that point. And our preparation needs to be prepared for. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and be hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness of God The kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see what Paul will say there to Titus. You were that way. There was a time when you were given to pleasures. You served diverse lusts and pleasures. But no more. This is characteristic of who we are as Christians. That pleasures don't rule us. God does. That we don't love pleasures more than we love God. We love God more than we love pleasure. And that we'll follow him even when it's not pleasure. 2 Peter 2, verse 13. Verse 12, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Cursed children, we can stop right there. What impression do you get from these folks? The impression I get is they're having a great time. That's what they've desired, and that's what they have. And yet they are made to be taken and destroyed. The rich who defraud their workers in James chapter 5, notice what? Peter will say about, I'm sorry, what James will say about them. James 5, verse 5. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Well, we, we have to watch this thing called pleasure in our day. It's a way to arrest our practice of preparation toward the Sabbath. And it can be done in innocent ways, beloved. We've looked at some pretty bad examples here. But there are other examples, innocent things, when they are undertaken disproportionately or for wrong motives. Then we can, we can break up that Sabbath cadence. So profiting from the word of the Lord, from the public worship regarding preparation is not preparing once in a while, but living in such a way that conduces to the effectiveness of those special times of preparation. The Lord's Day ought never to be thought contrary to your six-day world, but the capstone or apex of it. This is what we mean when we say that we must not observe a Sabbath day, but a Sabbath cadence to all of our days, breathing in and breathing out all the days of the week with the Lord's Day at our backs and before our face. Right? Our labor then, our recreations, should be ordered in such a way so as to augment our Sabbath day with the Lord and his people rather than to hinder it. And notice that there's no neutrality here. I believe that either we'll be augmenting our Sabbath observance or we'll be hindering it with the way we handle these other things of the world. Um, <clears throat> it is not just time spent in recreation and work, pleasure and profit, but the why of it. If every thought is to be brought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, and all our thoughts are naked and open before the eyes with whom, before whom we have to do, Hebrews 4, 13. 
then the why of our labor, the why of our recreation, the why of our pleasures must come into focus as well and must be made to serve the Lord as a part of our Sabbath preparation. It's not a Sabbath day, it's a Sabbath life observed week by week. Colossians 3. The apostle here will talk to laborers, slaves. It's a familiar passage. We look at it often as an encouragement to our own work, don't we? Verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart. What? Fearing God. Our labors must be God-fearing labors. Do you think of your job that way, beloved? Do you think of your calling that way? Mothers in the house, guys at the office or on the job site, do you think of it that way? In the shop? And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the, of the inheritance. Burn these words into your, into your minds. For ye serve the Lord Christ. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and spend a few moments there and then we'll close. We'll go back to Ecclesiastes. If you want to know how to work, how to labor, how to glorify God and all that, the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe, is indispensable to that. (coughs) We're in chapter 9, verse 4. For to him that is joined to all living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred, their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Go thy way. Eat thy bread with joy. And drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he, God, hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. That's one of those stand-up and cheer passages, isn't it? Listen to what Solomon says there. He says, first of all, the Lord gives you your life to live before him. The Lord is not a stingy giver. He hasn't given you a stingy life. He's given you a life that is full of blessing. Notice the blessings that he, that he speaks of in this passage. The wife of your youth. You have bread. You have joy. You have wine. You have a merry heart. God now accepteth your works, your labors. In what way does he accept them? Because your labors are an offering to him. Your labors are presented to him. Your labors belong to him. We don't have a separate life in any particular apart from our God. 
You present your labor to him as the work he has given you to do in this world. God looks over your labor. He judges it and, what does it say? He receives it. You're his. Beloved, you have called upon the name of the Lord. Your lives belong to him in everything. Your labors, even the most mundane of things that you do, they belong to him. You do them before him and he receives them. And in receiving them, he receives you. And in receiving you, he receives them. Because we are accepted in the beloved. He's not just talking about religious works here or moral works here. He's talking about everything that you do. Look at Luke 11. This is in keeping with what Solomon says here. Verse 37. And he, and he spake, and as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also, but rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. Well, this is shorthand statement. What Jesus is saying, give alms of such as ye have, that is, do the works that testify to your faith. And you know what? You don't have to worry about how you wash. God receives you. He receives what you do. He receives your persons and he receives your services. No matter what those works are, they're the, the way you make a living, the way you load the washer. Bring them all to the feet of Christ. Well, I don't want to tax you too long, especially listening to this scratchy old voice. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and put a pin right here, and we'll come back to this for a little bit next week, and then move on to other sorts of preparation. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, Our, we are tempted, we confess, we are tempted to think of our lives in multiple contexts, our working life, our family life, our church life, our recreations, things that we could never really bring to thee, we would think. Oh Lord, we pray, disabuse us of such thinking. And that we would, with the, with the Apostle Paul, begin to understand what it means that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, to do it unto thy glory. And that our preparation to approach thee Lord's Day by Lord's Day would truly be in the lives that we live, not in the moments that we set aside on Saturday and Sunday. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from dividing our lives up in such an unholy way. Help us, Lord, with 
the psalmist, and with countless others in thy word who have said that we belong to thee whole-souled, all of us, every bit of us, body and soul, that we belong unto thee. As the Heidelberg so puts it, so carefully puts it, that body and soul we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, turn us away from that kind of thinking where we would be tempted to have work or play or uh, other things apart from Thee and help us to live our lives before Thy watchful face and to serve Thee in everything that we do such that when we step into the Sabbath day that it would be but a step for us. Not that we should not prepare but that our preparation would be prepared for in the way that we live. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.